The Handmaid's Tale has not been out of print since it was first published in 1985. It has sold millions of copies worldwide and has appeared in a bewildering number of translations and editions. The book has also become synonymous with policy shifts aimed at controlling women, in particular women's bodies and reproductive functions. From chat rooms to social media and corporate media, sentences such as, like something out of The Handmaid's Tale and Here Comes The Handmaid's Tale have become common. Its author, who has published 60 books, which have been translated into 22 different languages, has received photographs from fans who have tattooed phrases from the book, Nolite de Bastards Cabarundorum, and Are There Any Questions? being the most frequent. The story has been made into a movie, an opera, and most recently, a very successful series. Both entertainment and political prophecy, the book has without a doubt captured the zeitgeist of several decades, and its relevance is, unfortunately, still alive and kicking to this day. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, tyranny, and taking chances. I'm your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin, and today we are taking a dive into Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Born November 18, 1939, in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, as the second of three children born to Carl Edmund Atwood and Margaret Dorothy Killam, Margaret Atwood spent much of her childhood in the backwoods of northern Quebec on account of her father's research in forest entomology. As a result of Carl Edmund's profession, Margaret and her brother Harold would live in tents while their father built a house for them deep in the Canadian forest. Once completed, the house had no electricity but was heated by two wood stoves. Also due to their father's passion for nature, Margaret and her brother would miss two months of school in fall and then again two months of school during spring. Their mother, a schoolteacher, made a deal with the school that allowed her to take their children out of school for these months in return for her homeschooling them. This would culminate in the siblings learning to read early on. No electricity meant no radio or TV, which meant that the main source of entertainment and information was through the written word. Margaret started out by drawing and writing comics early on, which soon evolved to short stories with illustrations, and then her first illustrated novel when she was seven years old. It was a story about an aunt that, by her own account, was not a great success. This made her realize that she liked the illustration part of a story more than the writing part and thus decided to put writing aside. She decided she would be a painter, but this would soon change. During the Second World War, Canadian women took jobs in the place of men serving in the military that they were expected to yield to men once the war was over. After 1945, not all women wanted to return to their traditional roles as housewives and mothers, leading to a male backlash. 
having been born in 1939 and coming of age in the 1950s, Atwood saw firsthand the complaints against women who continued to work after 1945, as well as the women who unhappily gave up their jobs. Now, the way in which the narrator of The Handmaid's Tale is forced into becoming an unhappy housewife after she loses her job, in common with all the other women of Gilead, was directly inspired by Atwood's memories of the 1950s. In the guidance textbook she received in 1952, there were many possible future careers for men, but only five for women. These were nurse, public school teacher, airline stewardess, secretary, and home economist. Of all those professions, home economics made the most money, which is why she chose it, though Margaret had other dreams. She realized she wanted to write professionally when she was 16 years old, and in 1957, she began studying at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, where she published poems and articles in Act of Victoriana, the college literary journal. She considered going to journalism school, but was discouraged upon being told that as a woman she would be writing little else than the obituary and the fashion pages. She considered running away to Paris, where she would drink absinthe, smoke cigarettes, write masterpieces, and die young. Well, pushing that dream aside, she would instead study English language and literature at Virginia College University in Toronto, thinking that it was more likely that she'd end up as a teacher before she would actually jump off a bridge. Then came November 17, 1960, when she did her first poem reading on stage at a Toronto coffee house called The Bohemian Embassy. She figured that if you could successfully read your poem on the stage to the sounds and distractions of espresso machines and flushing toilets, you could read your material out loud anywhere. Now, moving forward to 1961, she began graduate studies at Radcliffe College of Harvard University with a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. Being an aspiring poet, she was disappointed to learn that she was not allowed to visit the Lamont Library as it was strictly for male undergraduates. The library had all the modern poetry in it, and it was devastating to be excluded from these works on account of being a woman. Now, she would later remark that no one figured out that The Handmaid's Tale was, at least in part, about the Harvard English Department, whom didn't hire women at the time she attended. Now, that same year, she would publish her first book of poetry, Double Persephone, as a pamphlet by Hawkshead Press, winning the E.J. Pratt Medal. Now, her first anti-Vietnam march was in the fall of 1965. Ironically, she had no idea that she was even going to a march. In fact, a friend had invited her for a walk, and suddenly she found herself walking in an anti-war march. Inspired by this lucky accident, she would go on to write very intense and confrontational poems about the ugliness of war and the media tension surrounding it, which further popularized her writing. Now, after her career as a poet gained more and more momentum, Publisher McClellan and Stewart Publishing in Toronto wrote her a letter saying that if she ever wrote a novel, they would be very interested in reading it. So when she did write her first novel, 
She sent it in, and they wrote back saying that they wanted to publish it. Strangely, she didn't hear anything from them after that. Then she published yet another book of poetry, and she received another letter from the publisher saying that they had read in the newspaper that she had won a prize for her book of poems, and they did make mention of an unpublished novel of hers. They asked again if they could read it. The publisher had possession of the novel for two years, had not read it, but had nevertheless agreed to publish it. The novel in question would be The Edible Woman, her first novel, published in 1969. By 1976, there was such an interest in Margaret Atwood, her work, and her life that the Canadian news magazine Maclean's declared her to be Canada's most gossiped-about writer. In 1977, she published her first short story collection, Dancing Girls, which was the winner of the St. Lawrence Award for Fiction and the award of the Periodical Distributors of Canada for Short Fiction. Her literary reputation continued to rise in the 1980s with the publication of Bodily Harm, which was published in 1981, and The Handmaid's Tale in 1985, which is the focal point of this episode. Quote, War is what happens when language fails. End quote. It was around 1984 that she decided she was going to be more organized about the way she wrote novels. She acquired some filing cards and divided these into five groups of eight. The plan was to have five sections in the novel and eight characters. Next, she wrote on the filing cards her description of the characters. She soon knew everything about these characters. She knew what they had for breakfast, where they lived, their family relations, what they wore, and so on. Then one day, she found herself having written 200 pages when the epiphany occurred to her that nothing had happened in the story. She archived the novel and never used that method of writing again. Subsequently, she and her husband decided that they, along with their son, would move to Berlin in 1984 during the tumultuous years of the Berlin Wall. It was during their stay while Margaret was living on a grant for visiting artists that she began writing The Handmaid's Tale in the spring of 1984 on a rented German typewriter. Upon its initiation, the book was not called The Handmaid's Tale, rather it was called Offred, named after the character, and the name did not change to what it is known as today before January 3, 1985 after nearly 150 pages had already been written. Margaret had often used a journal while writing her books. She had jotted down numerous entries concerning the failed novel that had come before The Handmaid's Tale, the experimental and multi-layered saga set in Latin America that never amounted to anything. With The Handmaid's Tale, however, she didn't have many notes directly related to the book at all. Instead, she would write about working her way back to writing, about being away for too long, about losing her nerve and worries concerning reviews once the piece would be published. Like a diary of sorts, she would make entries concerning the weather, rain and thunder being of particular note. She chronicled the finding of puffballs, 
dinner parties with lists of those who attended and what was cooked, of illnesses, her own and others, and the deaths of friends. There were also notes about what books she was reading, speeches given, and trips made. Now, the books she was reading at the time concerning dystopian futures were always from the point of view of men. She wanted a story which dealt with similar topics, but from a woman's perspective. There were page counts, as she had a habit of writing down how many completed pages she had accomplished as a way to urge herself forth, but... Surprisingly, there are no reflections about the actual composition or subject matter of the book. She would later hypothesize that the lack of introspection concerning the plot of the story could have stemmed from a subliminal knowledge and confidence about knowing where the story was headed. And while writing the book, she felt scared, which is why she hypothesized that when readers read her story, they too felt fear. To quote Robert Frost, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. No surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. The same applies to fear, it seems. She knew that the plot of her book was never too far away from what the people in power at the time, 1984, would do if they got all the power they actually desired. She would later write that stories about the future always have a what-if premise. The Handmaid's Tale, for one, has several. For instance, if you wanted to seize power in the United States, abolish liberal democracy, and set up a dictatorship, how would you go about it? What would be your cover story? It would not resemble any form of communism or socialism, as those would be too unpopular. It might use the name of democracy as an excuse for abolishing liberal democracy, which depending on who you ask, is certainly not out of the question, not in 1985 or today. Like the original theocracy, those in power in the novel select only a few passages from the Bible to justify their actions, always leaning in favor of the Old Testament rather than the New. Since ruling classes always make sure that they get the best and rarest of desirable goods and services, and as it is one of the axioms of the novel that fertility in the industrialized West has come under threat, the rare and desirable would include fertile women and reproductive control. Who shall have babies? Who shall claim and raise those babies? Who shall be blamed if anything goes wrong with those babies? Margaret made a rule for herself. She would not include anything that human beings had not already done in some other place or time, or for which the technology did not already exist. She argues that all of the scenarios offered in The Handmaid's Tale have actually occurred in real life. In an interview she gave regarding her later novel, Oryx and Creek, she maintains that, as with The Handmaid's Tale, I didn't put anything that we haven't already done we're not already doing, we're seriously trying to do, coupled with trends that are already in progress. So all of those things are real, and therefore the amount of pure invention is close to nil. And she was known to carry around newspaper clippings to her various interviews to support her fiction's basis in reality if push came to shove. She has also gone to explain that The Handmaid's Tale is a response to those who say the oppressive, totalitarian, and religious governments that have taken hold in other countries throughout the years can't happen here. In this work, 
she has tried to show just how such a takeover might play out. She did not wish to be accused of dark, twisted inventions or of misrepresenting the human potential for deplorable behavior. The group-activated hangings, the tearing apart of human beings, the clothing specific to castes and classes, the forced childbearing and the appropriation of the results, the children stolen by regimes and placed for upbringing with high-ranking officials, the forbidding of literacy, the denial of property rights, all had precedents. Many of these were to be found not only in other cultures and religions, but within Western society and within the Christian religion itself. Religion in general played a rather large role in the writing of the novel. She was inspired by the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1978-79 that saw a theocracy established that drastically reduced the rights of women and imposed a strict dress code on Iranian women, very much like that of Gilead. In The Handmaid's Tale, a reference is made to the Islamic Republic of Iran in the form of the history book, Iran and Gilead, two late 20th century monotheocracies, mentioned in the end notes describing the historian's convention in 2195. Her picture of a society ruled by men who professed high moral principles but are in fact self-interested and selfish was inspired by observing Canadian politicians in action. In particular, she was referring to those in her hometown of Toronto who frequently professed in a very sanctimonious manner to be acting from the highest principles of morality, while in reality, the opposite was and often still is the case. The state-sanctioned murder of dissidents was inspired by the Philippines under President Ferdinand Marcos, as well as the last general secretary of the Romanian Communist Party, Nicolae Ceausescu's obsession with increasing the birth rate which led to strict policing of pregnant women and outlawing of birth control and abortion. The Handmaid's Tale has often been called a feminist dystopia, but that term is not strictly accurate. In a feminist dystopia, all of the men would have greater rights than all of the women. It would be two-layered in structure, top-layer men, bottom-layer women. Gilead, on the other hand, is the usual kind of dictatorship, shaped like a pyramid, with the powerful of both sexes at the apex, the men generally outranking the women at the same level, then descending levels of power and status with men and women in each, all the way down to the bottom, where the unmarried men must serve in the ranks before being awarded an wife. The handmaids themselves are a pariah caste within the pyramid, treasured for what they may be able to provide, their fertility, but untouchables otherwise. To possess one is, however, a mark of high status, just as many slaves or a large retinue of servants always has been. But since the regime operates under the guise of strict Puritanism, these women are not considered a harem intended to provide delight as well as children. They are functional rather than decorative. When it comes to sources of inspiration, three things that had been long of interest to Margaret came together during the writing of the book. The first is quite obvious, 
her interest in dystopian literature, an interest that began with the adolescent reading of George Orwell's 1984, which, by the way, you can hear all about on House of Words, Episode 6, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Her fondness of dystopian works continued through her period of graduate work at Harvard in the early 1960s. Once you've been intrigued by a literary form, she once said, you always have a secret yen to write an example of it yourself. A second point of inspiration was her study of 17th and 18th century America, which was of particular interest to her since many of her own ancestors had lived in those times and in that place. And thirdly was her fascination with dictatorships and how they function, not unusual in a person who had been born in 1939, three months after the outbreak of World War II. Atwood would later say, I was perhaps too optimistic to end The Handmaid's story with an outright failure. Even 1984, that darkest of literary visions, does not end with a boot grinding into the human face forever, or with a broken protagonist feeling a drunken love for Big Brother, but with an essay about the regime written in the past tense and in standard English. Similarly, I allowed my handmaid a possible escape via Maine and Canada, and I also permitted an epilogue from the perspective of which both the handmaid and the world she lived in have receded into history. When asked whether the handmaid's tale is about to come true, I remind myself that there are two futures in the book, and that if the first one comes true, the second one may do so also. She wrote the novel by pen as, according to her, it seems to allow more of a flow from brain to hand and to the page. Now, considering herself a downhill skier when it comes to writing, trying to go as fast as possible, getting the first 50 to 60 pages are all about getting the story out. After these initial pages are written, she can start thinking about structure. Then comes a lot of backtracking and filling in and revision, and it is when she revisions it that she sees a lot that she hadn't seen upon that first writing. Upon reaching a point of being content with the handwritten draft, she would transcribe the story on typewriter. Then came the time to scribble notes and additions on the typed pages before passing the papers on to a professional typist. As a side note, personal computers, also known as PCs, were in their infancy in 1985, and therein lied the need for a professional typist to transfer the writing onto the digital format. By way of her journal at the time, we know that she left Berlin in June after having begun the novel that spring and returned to Canada. She spent a month on Galliano Island in British Columbia, wrote through the fall, and afterwards spent four months in early 1985 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where she held a Master of Fine Arts chair. While in Alabama, she completed the book. On November 16, 1985, she seemed to be back to her former self, writing, I feel sucked hollow, to which she added, but functional. Quote, but who can remember pain once it's over? All that remains of it is a shadow, not in the mind even, in the flesh. Pain marks you, but too deep to see, out of sight, out of mind. A quote from The Handmaid's Tale. 
The book was published in Canada in the fall of 1985 to both baffled and anxious reviews, some wondering if it could happen there. It would debut in the UK and the USA simultaneously in February of 1986. In the UK, Having already experienced its Oliver Cromwell moment some centuries earlier and was in no mood to repeat it, the reaction was along the lines of jolly good yarn. In the United States, however, and despite a dismissive review in the New York Times, it was more like, how long have we got? And with that, I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not this was anything to worry about. The Handmaid's Tale won the 1985 Governor General's Award and the first Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1987. It was also nominated for the 1986 Nebula Award, as well as the 1986 Booker Prize and the 1987 Prometheus Award. A sequel novel, The Testaments, was published in 2019. In 2022, the Handmaid's Tale was included on the Big Jubilee Read list of 70 books by Commonwealth authors selected to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee of Elizabeth II. As usual, I will leave you with one parting quote from the Resistance author herself. I would like to be the air that inhabits you for a moment only. I would like to be that unnoticed and that necessary. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Moore Harden. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason and Moore Harden and music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Harden. 